Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. This is Ryan. And this is Rosie. How are you doing, Rosie? I'm doing well. We had a glass of wine, and it's super gray and windy outside, so I'm not upset about being indoors. True, but it's supposed to be in the 80s next week, so that's good. Um, We're currently in our new studio at our new place that we're finally starting to actually settle into. We've got a lilac candle lit in. Litten. Litten? Yes. No. No. Lit. And burritos walking around on the desk. So we're trying to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't start himself on fire. So it feels like home. Yep. Sometime in the future, we are going to give a tour of our studio. We're just waiting for a few more things that it's my fault because I want it to be perfect before I show it on camera. So yeah. Rosie's very into decorating. I do like my things pretty. Mm-hmm. So look out for that on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon... We want to thank our new patrons, Samantha. Woo! Thank you, Samantha. Sarah, mm-hmm. thank you. And Mariah, thank you. Thank you. Mariah's actually a real life friend of ours I've known since I was 10. So that's pretty cool. And I've known since I was 18. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> um, also, we want to say thank you to Brittany again for upping her pledge and Alice for upping her pledge. Like, you what? You guys are so nice like we've been blown away by the support our patrons have shown during this difficult crazy time i don't know what to say like you guys mm-hmm. totally it unexpected. really means a lot to us you totally help us keep going unnecessary but we really appreciate it i don't know if rosie said this but covid's really been getting to us just well, like the whole you know isolation thing it hasn't been until this morning when i cried yeah it's it's just hard to be unsure about the future and yeah what's happening but we're gonna try to just keep things going normally here and keep providing the show that a lot of you appreciate mm-hmm. and we appreciate that you guys enjoy it so again thank you so much for your support all of our patrons besides that oh you know what another thing we're going to be posting to patreon eventually is a really crazy intense experience we had with facebook marketplace oh my gosh I was selling my old car <laughs> still a little salty about it not ready to talk about it <laughs> Well, at some point we'll have to because it's really intense and interesting. Uh, (laughs) Which is part of another factor in why we're a little bit stressed out today. But we shouldn't be stressed out because we have so many nice people. (laughs) Like the person who wrote us this review we're about to share. This five-star review. Okay, so this is from Hat XNK Cog Bob. K-E-J-W space D-N-C. Wow. 
What a name. Please write into us and let us know what that stands for. It's entitled it's fascinating. To Make You Smile. I absolutely love listening to your podcast. You guys make everything so interesting, and I love how you guys interact with your fans. Ryan, you are amazing, and do not let the negative reviews get to you, because we all think you're amazing. Aww. Rosie, I love your personality, and most of all, how caring you are. I look forward to going to work so I can listen to you guys. Oh, And I'm getting caught up, and I'm really sad I have to wait for more episodes. You two are amazing, and I love your relationship. <laughs> that one, when I first saw it, made me tear up. Did it? it? That's so really sweet. sweet. That means a lot. And That's really, really sweet. We're not that great. <laughs> I'm just thinking, <laughs> if only you would have seen our relationship an hour ago when we were fighting. But it's okay, because now we're fine. I feel like people overuse the word fighting. We were trying to work <laughs> things out, and we did. So that's an important part of a relationship is being able to work out disagreements <laughs> and issues that come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, with that, thank you for that review. <laughs> Hat X N K Cog Bob K J. Okay. <laughs> I'm serious. Like I don't know how to pronounce that, but please let us know. We appreciate that. So just a heads up, this is part two of our coverage of Shanann, Bella, and Cece Watts. So if you haven't heard part one yet, that's episode 106. So go listen to that first. To begin this week's story, we're going to be listening to the raw recording of an interview that Chris Watts did with Denver 7 News. This was the day after his wife and daughters went missing. So it's Tuesday, August 14th, I believe. Uh, Chris Watts, W-A-T-T-S. What, what's going on right now around your house? Right now it's got canine units, the sheriff's department. Everybody's like they're, they're doing their best right now to figure out like if they can get a scent and see where they went. If they went on foot, they went in a car, they went somewhere. And right now it's just like they've, they've been on point. They're going through the house trying to get a scent and hopefully they can pick something up to where it's, it's going to lead to something. What happened? As she, like, she came home from the airport 2 a.m. and I left around 5.15, she was still here. And like about 12.10 in that afternoon, her friend Nicole showed up at the door. Like I had texted Shanann a few times that day, called her, say, you know, but she never got back to me, but she wasn't getting back to any of her people as well. And that's what really concerned a lot of people is like, if she's not getting back to her, like if she doesn't get back to me, that's fine. Like she gets busy during the day. But she didn't get back to her people, which was very concerning. And Nicole called me when she was at the door, and that's when I came home. And then walked in the house, and nothing was vanished. Nothing was here. I mean, she wasn't. She wasn't here. The kids weren't here. No, nobody was here. What's your wife's name? Shanann. S H A N A N N. What's your What's your kids? Bella and Celeste. Celeste. C E L E S T E. Four. Bella's four. Celeste is three. How many times did you try calling her? I called her three times, texted her about three times, just to say, you know, what's going on? Like, I did, I, cause after that, after the, after I called her and texted her once, it's like, like, maybe she was just busy. Like, it, she'd just gotten back, you know, like everybody's probably calling her from her trip. She just got back from Arizona. And I figured yeah, she was just busy. But when her friend showed up, that's what it was like, it, it registered like, all right, this isn't right. Think she just took off? Do you think? I, I mean, right now I don't even want to just like throw anything out there. Like, 
I hope that she's somewhere safe right now and with the kids. But I mean, could she event? Could she just take it off? I don't know. But if somebody has her and they're not safe, like I want them back now. Like that's that, that's what's in my head. Like if they're safe right now, they're gonna come back. But if they're not safe right now, that's what that's the not knowing part. Like if they're not safe, I, I, last night I was I had every light in the house on. I was hoping that I would just get just ran over by the kids running in the door and just like barrel rushing me, but it didn't happen. And it was just a traumatic night trying to be here. I'm gonna ask some kind of tough questions about your relationship with the kids. Yeah, every, every, I mean, yeah, my, my kids are my life. I mean, those those smiles light up my life. And it's like, I mean, last night, like during like at, you know when they usually eat dinner, it was just like I miss them. Like, I mean. I missed telling them, hey, you got to eat that or you're not going to get your dessert, you know, and just like, you're not going to get your snack after. I miss that. Like, I, I miss them, you know, cuddle up on their couches. They have like a Minnie Mouse couch and a Sophia couch that they cuddle up on and watch, you know, Bubble Guppies or something. And it was just like, you know, I, mean, I, I, I was, <laughs> it was tearing, tearing me apart last night. And I needed that. I needed that last night. And for, that, for nobody to be here last night and to go into their rooms and not and know that I wasn't going to turn the rain machines on. I know that I wasn't gonna turn their monitor on. No, I wasn't gonna kiss them to bed tonight. It was, it, it was, I, I, that's why last night it was just horrible. I couldn't do it. it I just, I just want, I want everybody to just come home. Like wherever they're at, come home. That's what I want. She came back Sunday, you said it's you at night. Yeah, cause her, her flight got delayed from Arizona cause of like other storms around the, the nation. So yeah. she's supposed to get home like 11. She got home at like 148. She got in bed about two. What was, what was she going for, like family trip? Or like? It was a Thrive Direct Sales. Uh, it was a local event that was down there between a bunch of leaders in, in the company. And that night, that day she was back, I mean. I, le I left work for work early that morning, like 5.15, 5.30. So like she barely let me, she barely got, barely gotten into bed pretty much. And, and, you know, this might be a tough question, but it, did you guys get into an argument before she left? It wasn't, it wasn't like an argument. We had an emotional conversation, but I'll leave it at that. But it's, I just want them back. <laughs> I, just, I just want them to come back. And if, if they're not safe right now, that's what's, that's what's tearing me apart. Because if they are safe, they're coming back. But if they're not, this, this, this has got to stop. Like somebody has to come forward. You spoken to her family, like her parents? Yeah, I've, I've, they've been in constant contact. Like, Every hour, I mean, it's, I mean, everybody back in North Carolina and the East Coast, I mean, from Maine to Florida. What is her parents saying to you? Like, They're just like, like, if they need to get on a flight, just let them know, because, I mean, they don't, they, they feel helpless right now, because they, they're on the opposite side of the country. I mean, this Colorado is, I mean, you can't just drive around and look. I mean, it's just like, you wouldn't really know what you're looking for. That's what the cops pretty much told me. That, that first day, I was like, I want to get out and drive around. They said, you wouldn't know what to look for. What is, what's, what's police saying to you? Right now, this is, what they're doing right now is with the canine in the sense, I think this is the biggest thing. This is the biggest thing they've done so far because yesterday, they all the Federal Police Department did all the searching of the house and try to gather whatever information they could. And with the detectives, officers, and sergeants, and today it's, I mean, obviously with all the activity that's around, it's, 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 there's a lot going on around here. And I really hope that all of this can lead to something positive.
what did uh, your neighbors, did they see anything? Did your neighbors see anything? No, like we've, we've uh, the, the police department went door to door asking like cameras and everything, just like nothing. If your wife can see this, if she, if she can watch these, what would, you, what would you like to tell your wife and your kids? Shannon, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just, just, just come back. Like if somebody has her, just please bring her back. I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete with without anybody here. Please bring her back. That's it. I can take that mic off you. So without spoiling anything, um, what are your thoughts on that, Rizzy? Um <laughs> Like how do you interpret his vibe? Well, it's hard because I already know what happens, but as a person coming in fresh to this story, I would think Man, he's really monotone and not showing much emotion. Interesting you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. That's definitely a popular opinion with the people who saw this interview. Is that, why isn't he crying? Why isn't he, Yeah. you know, more concerned about... Like, especially when he brings up the mini and Sophia couch, like those little mini kid couches... Oh, what is that? Princess Sophia. Well, they're just like little foam couches for little kids, you know? And they, yeah. They have popular cartoons on them. And he, I don't know, I just, if I had missing children and I was talking about them lounging on their little tiny furniture, I would yeah. like tear up and be super yeah, not visibly knowing. sad. But he's he just, it almost sounded like he just brought it up to bring it up. Yeah. So it just rubbed rubbed me the wrong way. You would think that if you have no idea where they are or if you'll ever see them again, you'd have a hard time holding back tears. Right. So that's that. You can interpret it the way you want. I would definitely recommend watching the video because then you can get an even bigger scope of his emotional response to all this. Now we're going to talk about the search that they did of his house the day after um, Shannon was reported missing. And it was the same day that he was interviewed, which we just listened to. It was Tuesday around 11.45 a.m. So this is a whole day after his family went missing that they actually searched his house, mm-hmm. which seems like a lot of time. Right. Um, so are you ready to jump into it, Rosie? Mm-hmm. So, at 11.45 a.m., officers Kate Lyons and Ivan Perez were dispatched to the Watts family home to search with cadaver dogs. They knocked on the door just before noon, and Chris answered. And Off- I just want to jump in quick, and they weren't all cadaver dogs. I think there was a cadaver dog, and then just two scent search dogs, where you give them the scent and they track it. So, Okay. So, I just wanted to throw that out there. Officer Lyons asked him for consent for the dogs to enter and collect a scent sample so they could search the area for Shanann. They advised him that he did have the right to refuse, but Chris voluntarily let them into the house. And it's interesting. Officer Lyons, Kate, she immediately noticed the strong scent of cleaning chemicals when she walked in. Not a good sign. And then she also noticed fresh vacuum lines on the carpet, so the, the house was apparently spotless when they walked in. They also noticed that he had the TV on watching a sports show. You'd think the day after your family goes missing, you'd have a hard time caring about sports, you know? 
I can I can't imagine how frantic like we were just talking about how emotional and frantic you'd be mm-hmm. not knowing where your family is. But maybe he just needed it on as a distraction. It's interesting you bring that up because, you know, we got to look at all the possibilities. But I guess just for me personally, I can't imagine caring about what was going on with sports at that point. True. Very true. One of the deputies asked Chris if he had any dirty laundry from Shanann that would have her scent on it. Chris directed them to a basket in the master bathroom. But unfortunately, Chris told them that his clothes were mixed up with hers and they weren't able to use any of it, which is pretty typical, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Then they asked if Shanann had driven her car to and from the airport that weekend, and he said no. Her friend had dropped her off, but he had taken the girls to a pool party in it on Saturday. Then they asked for dirty clothes from Bella and Cece, but again they hit a roadblock when Chris told them that he had picked all their dirty clothes up off the floor. So they just kept hitting bumps here trying to find something to work with. But then they asked about the sheets from the girls' bed. Again, Chris let them know that he had recently made their beds and had touched all the sheets. So those were cross-contaminated as well and wouldn't be able to be used for a solid scent sample. But there's one thing that he most likely hadn't cross-contaminated. Officer Limes actually had noticed a couple pairs of kids' shoes sitting on a chair on the back patio. She asked about them, and Chris said they'd gotten wet at the pool party on Saturday night, and he put them out there to dry. So they were finally able to get a decent sample for each of the girls, because usually parents aren't putting their hands inside their kids' shoes. (laughs) So True. Officer Perez asked Chris if Shanann ever went hiking, trying to think of any possibility of where she could have gone. And I'm guessing in Colorado, a lot of times people go missing, they were on a hike in the mountains. After getting the girls' shoes, they went back into the house and found the news reporter, who we heard interviewing Chris at the beginning of this episode. They asked Chris if he could step outside with them to do the interview. Officer Perez accompanied Chris outside so he could continue to remind Chris that he had the right to enter the house during the search if he wanted to. And they did a really great job in this investigation of making sure they crossed their T's and dotted their I's. You know, making sure Chris was aware of his rights Mm -hmm. and aware that this was a voluntary search that he agreed to. Because it will make things a lot easier later on if they need to prosecute, making sure everything follows protocol. Chris told Officer Perez he understood his rights, and he chose to stay outside and talk to the reporter, letting the police continue their search inside his home without Chris around. I mean, that's a bold move, and kind of seems like he's not really worried about them finding anything, and he's being cooperative. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, on the outside, that's, that's in his favor. After the interview, Officer Lyons had Officer Perez ask Chris which pajamas the girls had been wearing Sunday night. He said he wasn't sure, but they usually wear long dress-style pajamas. So that's not too helpful. After this, they switched the dogs out and had another dog come in the house after getting Chris's consent again. They took another dog and gave it the scent from the girls' shoes to search around the outside of the house, trying to catch a scent leading anywhere out of the area. They took the dogs down several streets in the neighborhood, but the dogs never alerted to anything. Next, one of the handlers walked the dog by Chris's work truck, and the dog showed interest in it. 
Uh, these dogs aren't led to do anything. Like they have handlers, but um, you know the handler just kind of stands back and lets the dog do the searching and lead the way. So when one of them shows interest in an area, it's worth noting. They searched the inside of the vehicle. The dog never alerted for human remains in the car, but it did alert to one of the scents they had lifted from the girl's shoes. But the chances of them riding in his work truck, you know, once in a while, are pretty high. So you'd think their scent would be in there. So to me, this isn't super helpful again. Officer Perez told Chris he couldn't imagine what Chris is going through right now, having no idea where his family is. Mm -hmm. But Officer Lyons was watching Chris when Perez said this because you'd think it would trigger some kind of emotional response. Um, But Officer Lyons noted that Chris had been showing absolutely no emotion while he was talking about the little girls or like what you said about the couches. Like, the words he was saying were there about how much he missed them, but to detectives, his body language was not lining up with his words. The words were there, but not the emotion. Exactly. While the cadaver dog was in the house, it showed interest in two interesting spots. An unmade bed in the basement of the house, and the spot at the bottom of the stairs. So that's interesting. Um, And the way the dog handler explained it to Officer Lyons is that when people are in distressing situations, even while they're alive, it leaves a scent that kind of pulls up and gets concentrated in the area. Isn't that weird? As they were in distress in this this spot. So this is what the handler interpreted these little signs of interest as, is something happened at the bottom of the stairs, and something happened in this unmade bed in the basement. Hmm. I don't know if... Like the scent wears off after a while, or if it has to be recent, but it's interesting. After this, Officer Perez went around to the nearby businesses like McDonald's and Home Depot to request footage from the video surveillance systems. But both the manager at McDonald's and at the Home Depot said they didn't have access to the camera systems, and they'd have to ask their boss. So Officer Perez left his info and asked them to call when it was ready to pick up. Which would be really annoying. It would be. Officer Lyons went door to door with volunteers, handing out flyers in the area, asking for help to find the missing girls and their mother. But after this search, the police asked Chris if he'd be willing to come down to the station and answer some questions that would help them find his family. Because, you know, that's the goal at this point, is figuring out where his family is. At 8.08 p.m. that night, on August 14th, Chris was sat in the interrogation room where FBI agent Graham Coder sat down to question him. So I know I bring this guy up a lot. Derek Van Shake, um, who, you know, he does body language analysis on YouTube. He pointed out that Graham was dressed casually in a black polo tee instead of an FBI jacket. Mm-hmm. And this is actually a tactic they use to put people at ease, you know, instead of trying to intimidate them. Like the Burke Ma- Bert Macklin approach, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh huh. Um, instead of that, they, you know, want to come across as casual. So, I'll be referencing a lot of the tactics that Derek Van Shake pointed out because I found them really fascinating. Um, 
and I think they're just worth sharing. Another interesting thing is that Graham sat down right next to Chris instead of across from him to give him more of a feeling of them working on the same team Mm -hmm. rather than an adversarial position. Right. There's so many low-key things that they do Yeah, that, once you learn about them, are super intriguing. Do you learn about any of these in your psychology class? Nope. But that was an intro class. Oh, true. You know. Any hoodle. To set the stage, the table is against a wall and it has five chairs, two per side and one on the end. Chris sat in the chair on the right side away from the wall. FBI agent Coder sat in the chair next to him at first, but then asked Chris to switch with him, putting Chris in the chair against the wall to prepare for what was coming later. And this is another subtle tactic, putting Chris in a corner, literally physically, so when they get to the tough part of the questioning... He will be physically feeling like he's cornered. And then he'll feel pressured to confess if he's hiding anything, which, based on his vibes during the initial welfare check and the news interview and the dog search, he's definitely hiding something. But sitting down in this interview, the FBI agents are going to be as careful as they can not to push Chris to clam up and lawyer up. But instead... They'll be trying to make him feel like they're just trying to help him. You know, that's they're not actually wanting to help him. They're just trying to get the truth out of him. And we see this again and again in this case. Even with the first responding officer, he wouldn't hint at the fact that he was suspicious of Chris. Remember when they were watching that the surveillance video and Chris was starting to look really suspicious, mm-hmm. but the officer, even when the neighbor was talking about how suspicious Chris was looking the officer didn't want to hint at that at all because he didn't want to get back to Chris and for Chris to lawyer up or leave so agent Coder asked Chris what do you think happened now he's trying to get a good picture of the narrative Chris has in his mind so he can later run through it and dissect it he can't poke holes in it unless he understands the full picture of what Chris is thinking Graham Coder goes on to ask If you could think of anything that we could do to find them, what would it be? After this question, Chris looked down at the paper, wringing his hands, and then gave a quick smirk before saying how it was, if it was someone he knew, it would have to be someone with car seats. But he also said it could definitely be someone he didn't know, because she had so many friends through her direct sales business that he'd never met. But don't forget... They have surveillance of the front of the house. No one came or went from the house that day except for Chris and Nicole, who was only there to look for Shanann. But Chris continued talking before another question ever came and gave an explanation to cover his tracks for that. He indicated that a man or a woman she knew through work could have shown up and pulled pulled up in the back of the house and said, Hey, let's go. Then they all got in and rode away with them to start a secret life. (laughs) Yeah. So his wife and daughters disappear, and he has apparently no idea where they went. Like we've said, you'd think he'd be frantically trying to search for them and exhausting any and all possibilities, desperate to have his daughters back, you know? Mm -hmm. But instead, he's leaning into the possibility that they just vanished because they wanted to, 
which is a clear sign that he's trying to discourage a thorough search. Like, why would someone whose family disappeared act, um, act in a way that, you know, like, oh, it's probably not a big deal. They're probably safe. Why would he do that? If he truly missed them and had no idea what happened, that would make no sense. Right. And you could say, oh, but they were separating anyway. But it still is two little girls. Mm-hmm. You know, even if he didn't really care about Shanann anymore, he still has two daughters that he should care about. After this, Agent Coder asked Chris, have they already looked at your phone? To which Chris uncomfortably looks down at his phone and says, I don't think so. So Coder asks, can I run that out and have them look real quick? And Chris immediately replies, yep. As we'll find out later, this will reveal a very damning detail about Chris's personal life that makes him look even more suspicious. But it's interesting to see his body language when he says yep, because he looks like he hates what he's saying. Like, it hurts him to say that because he knows what it means. Like, it means he has to hand over his phone. But he's already committed to the helpful husband role, and he has to keep that up now, or it'll send off red flags if he suddenly is, you know, super protective of his privacy. Totally. So, I don't know if in his mind he's nailing the role, but in reality, he's doing a really terrible job of it. But I can imagine the pit in his stomach when the officer asked this. It's like the feeling I had when I was younger and my parents didn't want me texting with girls. Remember those days? Yeah. And they asked me if I was and I said no. And then immediately they asked to have my phone (laughs) and I wet my pants. Figuratively, of course. But, you know, because I was a teenager with a phone. Of course I was texting girls. But, (laughs) you know, that's just the feeling that I can imagine he got, like, I'm screwed. But we'll talk later about what they found on his phone and why he'd be wetting his pants at this request. (laughs) Okay. Agent Coder tells Chris, I really want them to not physically rip this phone apart, but really dive in. Are you okay with that? Again, Coder is making it seem like it's all Chris's choice, covering their tracks for the future. Chris told Coder how nothing made sense at the house when they found out she was gone, and once they found the phone, it was off. Coder replied, What do you mean the phone was off? So even Coder thought this was odd. He asked, Was the battery dead? And Chris said no. Coder paused to let the ridiculousness of that sink in, and then asked, What do you make of that? Chris responded, I have no clue. Like... Why was it off, or why was it not with her? Coder paused again and said, It's weird, right? So it's interesting that Coder is trying to help Chris see just how ridiculously odd this whole thing is. It's a situation that could only make sense if there had been evidence tampering. After this, Coder backed up and said, Let me back up here. You come home, and there's nobody in the house. And Chris replied, no. After a pause, Coder reiterated, nobody in the house, right? And Chris replied, yeah, unless you had a garage door. His voice tapered off as he, you know, made a motion with his hand like he was clicking a garage door opener. I just think it's interesting how he didn't finish saying garage door opener, because that's typical when someone's really nervous. 
They're so focused on the words coming out of their mouth that they forget to swallow and breathe. So they choke on their spit and they run out of air. He's really nervous here for some Mm -hmm. reason. After this, Coder asked, can we talk about something that's kind of hard to talk about? As he stood up to reposition and turned his chair toward Chris, looking straight at him. So things are getting serious. At this point, Chris has his back against the wall. And Coder is facing him now in a more adversarial position. So Coder's starting to apply some pressure to Chris. Coder told Chris, When I work investigations like this, I try to keep an open mind about everything. He paused and took a long breath, looking at the ceiling, indicating that he'd have a tough time saying this next part. But he continued, Part of keeping an open mind is listening to you talk about your wife and your marriage. And the day she goes missing is the day that you guys have marital discord. So you can understand what I'm thinking about you. Chris quickly replies, yeah. And Coder asks calmly, what do you think about that? So Coder did this in such a careful way by framing it so Chris can understand that this is an obvious conclusion based on the evidence. And, you know, how could he not come to this conclusion? And he's allowing Chris to speak and help Coder understand. So, again, he can let Chris paint the picture, and then he can find the issues with it. Chris starts to actually look a little bit vulnerable and says, If people knew you were having marital issues... They're going to look at me, especially with the way everything looks. And it honestly just makes me stick sick to my stomach because this is something I'd never do, ever. So you guys notice the problem with his phrasing here? Again, I got to give credit to Derek Van Shake for pointing this out. But Chris said, this is something I'd never do. Like he inadvertently indicated that he knows what happened. And that it was something bad Hmm. while trying to convince the FBI that he'd never do that. And the fact that he said ever at the end of it, after a pause, means that whatever he's imagining in his head is detestable. So that's a far cry from them deciding to bounce and just live in hiding, you know, or him just not knowing what happened. Because obviously, if he says this, he is imagining the worst, but... He's also saying, oh, they're probably fine. Hmm. You know? Very interesting. Coder just looked at Chris, but Chris grew uncomfortable with the silence and kept talking, saying, I know, like, you have to look at every vantage point. This is something I would never do to my kids or my wife at all. Again, same thing. He says this. But why would he say this is something I would never do if he didn't know what this was? Wow. I mean, nobody else knows what this means to Chris at this point. They're just trying to find out so they can find them. But with that out of the way, remember how he said that they found some interesting things on his phone? Coder's next question starts with him saying, I need to ask you about your marriage and infidelity. (laughs) And Chris says, okay, nodding his head. Coder just says, Tell me about it. Again, he's giving Chris the chance to be honest and paint the picture instead of 
just accusing him and putting Chris off. Chris says, I've never cheated on my wife, and I fully suspect she's never done that to me. Coder just nods and says, oh, okay. Chris continues, like, she's always been a trustworthy person. I've always been a trustworthy person, and I fully expect if we ever thought about straying another way, that we would tell each other before it happened. Who talks like that? Apparently no one, because then Coder lays the smack down on Chris. Coder threw his head back in frustration, but kept his cool as he told Chris, I think that sounds ridiculous. I gotta ask, what's her name? So, can you guess what they found on his phone? Well, Chris continued to deny it, and Coder asked him, Would you tell me if you did? To which Chris quickly answers, yes. But the FBI had his phone. Like, how dumb is Chris to think that he could continue to lie about this while they had his phone? So Chris had been cheating on Shanann for a while with a woman named Nicole Kessinger. So, Nicole Kessinger, we don't want to paint her in a bad light, but we want to mention that she... He had told her that he was just wrapping up a mutual divorce. And he never wore his wedding ring around her. So she thought he was free and clear at the time um, that she had a relationship with him. Hmm. That's what she says. Later, Coder showed Chris a picture of his daughters to try to get him to crack. So we're going to play the recording of his reaction here after he saw the picture. And we just want you to be able to hear it for yourself because I think it's it says a lot. You have to trust me that when I tell you that these two beautiful girls right here, I did nothing to them and to my beautiful wife, I did nothing to her. I had nothing to do with the disappearance. Like they vanished, they were taken, someone take, has taken them, they're safe somewhere, we don't know. I had nothing to do with these, with this, with this act of like evil cruelty whatever has happened here because my love for these two girls and my wife like i don't want anything to happen to them i've never wanted anything to happen to them the amount of love i have for my family is exponential and it's never going to die and they need i want them back i have to have them back so what do you think of that rosie (laughs) fake He's trying so hard to say the right words, but it's just showing no real emotion or desire to find them. And again, he's throwing out that they're safe somewhere. And no one does that if they want to find their family. No one just assumes that their missing loved ones are safe. Right. Now, at this point, it's after 10 p.m. It's been a long day, but Agent Coder is not going to give up on the progress he's made with Chris. He tells Chris that he knows there's something he isn't telling him. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows it's there. And at this point, Coder knows Chris did something to his family. He just doesn't know what or where to look. Coder flat out says, I simply do not believe some of the things you're telling me. And then asks, why didn't you call 911? Chris, looking panicked, says, I didn't think anything was wrong. And at this point, he's sounding like he's gasping for air because, you know, he's just so nervous. Because that's a really good question. Why didn't you call 911? And why didn't why did you discourage um, Shanann's friends from calling 911? Mm-hmm. Coda replies, 
I think you knew what was wrong. And Chris quickly replies, I did not know what was wrong, sir. Another thing that's interesting to me is that anytime he's put on the spot in a surprising way, he looks uncomfortable and he can barely say what he's trying to say, like he's gasping for air. But anytime a direct accusation is made towards him, he quickly shoots it down like that. Uh, like he knows he needs to deny things with conviction to appear like he's not lying, but he also can't help his natural visceral reactions to being put on the spot in a surprising way. You Immediately, Coda replies, tell me about the call to your daycare. <laughs> this is another interesting piece of evidence that doesn't make any sense. Chris said, I called them to see if the girls were there. They said they weren't there. I told them since they weren't there, just to put them back on the waiting list. And that's jumping the gun a bit, isn't it? He finds out his missing daughters aren't at daycare, so he unenrolls them? Uh, what? Why would he do that? Well, he has an explanation for that as well. Coder says, that's not what you told them. Then Chris said, I told them that we were going to sell the house. We were going to put it on the market and probably weren't going to be in the area anymore. And Coder replies, that's two different things, Chris. So this is a staple of great detective work. Let the accused person paint the picture of what happened and then poke holes in the ridiculous parts and watch them completely change their story. I called them to see if the girls were there. and said they weren't there. Okay. I told them since they weren't there, just put them back on the waiting list. That's not what you told them. I told them that we were going to sell the house. We are going to put it on the market and we probably won't be in the area anymore. That's two different things, Chris. Well, I wanted them to be back on, on I put them on the waiting list since they weren't there. Why weren't they there? I don't know. Where were they going to go? They went to a, Sinead took them to a friend's house. Why wouldn't they go to daycare? I am not sure. Uh, honestly, sir, I am not sure. When you walk out of this room, there's nothing I can say to a room full of police officers that's going to convince them that you have nothing to do with this. So which is it? Did you unenroll them because they weren't there or because you were moving? Or are you just lying about both things? Mm -hmm. You can hear the shaky voice of someone digging themselves into a hole. Mm -hmm. But then Coder gets a reel with Chris. Right. Like we heard, he tells Chris, when I walk out of this room... There's nothing I can say to a room full of police officers that's going to convince them that you had nothing to do with this. Nothing you've told me tonight makes sense. Nothing you've told me tonight feels like the truth. Can you imagine hearing that from the FBI? Yikes. But then he asked the classic Joe Bennett question. When we find the guy that took them, what do you think we should do? But then Chris tries to play damage control for what he said earlier, referring to the unknown events as this, remember? He says, they're going to come home safe, correct? When you find the guy? Coder says, when we find the guy, they're going to come home. Again, we got to play his reaction here. Life in prison would be the, that's what I would, that's what I would think with two kids that are involved. What if he hurt them? Did they pass? Did, did I, I'm not sure if, like, 
that penalty is even used, is it used in Colorado? I'm not even sure what it's the death penalty. Okay. Um, I mean, like, if these kids are not alive, like, there's no, there's nothing you could do to, to cope with that, to make me cope with that, if those kids are not okay. A parent who's missing their family would reply with uncontrollable emotion, not be asking technical questions about the legal system and whether the death penalty is used. A parent that's in true trauma is going to be like, kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at this point, it's almost 10.20 p.m., and Coder decides to wrap it up for the night so he doesn't push Chris too much in one sitting and cause him to lawyer up and shut up. So he says... There's going to come a time where you'll have to face other people about this because I'm not the only one who thinks you have something to do with this. You need someone you can call and I want to be that guy, all right? I want you to go home and I want you to know that I'm the guy you can talk to that's not going to judge you. I have kids. I would love for you and me as a team to talk tomorrow and do a polygraph tomorrow and move past all this, okay? Move past me wondering about Chris. I just want to get it behind us, okay? And then our talks are going to be a lot more comfortable than they were tonight. So he's trying to sell Chris on the polygraph test, building up Chris's confidence that if he takes it, he'll be able to exonerate himself and go home, putting himself on the same team as the cops. It's an interesting tactic to use here. So the next day, August 15th, around 11 a.m., Chris showed up again to take the polygraph test with Tammy Lee from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. When he walked in, she gave him a friendly smile and asked how he was. Again, putting him at ease. But it's funny, he got there at 11 a.m., but they didn't even start the actual test until 3 p.m. So Mm -hmm. she had been setting up his baseline, just talking to him for a while, for four hours Asking him random questions that she knew he would tell the truth about and other ones that made him uncomfortable that she knew he would lie about. And just by the end of that, before they even took the actual polygraph test, she's like, just being real with you, Chris, you're a terrible liar. (laughs) And I think you know that Mm -hmm. because you did such a bad job of lying to me during this preliminary baseline test. But then they got into the actual polygraph test asking the tough questions um and long story short he failed um i don't think the polygraph is 100 percent reliable but this is interesting like his readings were off the chart of how how much of a reaction he had when he was being dishonest Graham Coder came into the room after the test and sat down with Chris and Tammy. They calmly let him know that he failed, but then leaned into trying to convince him why it would be best for him in the long run to tell the truth. Tammy told him that it's natural for someone to lie when they make a mistake, but they eventually tell the truth and make things right. Finally, after some prodding, Chris admitted that he was cheating on Shanann. So after he admitted that... Coder kind of encouraged him and rewarded him for that, you know, positive reinforcement for telling the truth. Um, he's just like, this is the Chris I knew would come out today. Mm-hmm. This Chris is a truth teller. So he's trying to build 
Chris's self image up and give him that positive reinforcement. Um, cause they don't really respect Chris in reality, but they want to find his missing family and they know the only way to do that. And to get him to tell the truth, um, is to make him comfortable with the idea of telling the truth. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's, it is. And that's why we usually don't talk about this aspect of the investigation, but I think it's, but we like it. Yeah. It's, it's something interesting. really interesting. And we got to give law enforcement officials the credit and respect they deserve. Cause a lot of times we just gloss over this part, mm-hmm. but I mean, a lot of the justice that gets served is because these people are so good at what they do. Right. Chris started talking about how he had been falling out of love with Shanann and falling in love with Nicole. He said he didn't want to tell the truth about Nicole because she's a wonderful person and he didn't want her to get involved. Coder saw Chris starting to open up and be honest, so he rewarded that with reinforcing speech. He said that he knew why he didn't want to tell them about Nicole, because he wanted to be a good person and take care of people. Again, Coder saying that, um, saying what he needs to say to get the truth, basically. Chris kept rambling about how bad he felt, but that he'd never felt the way he feels for Nicole about anyone else, and didn't want to ruin that by dragging her into this investigation. Coder replied, "That's not your fault." implying that Chris can't help the way he feels and trying to align himself on the same side as Chris in his mind to get him to open up. He said, I know you want to take care of her because you're the type of guy that takes care of women. Uh, I know this part's really hard to hear because it is for me. Like Hearing Coder talk to Chris like this makes me really upset, especially knowing how this all unfolds. But um, Derek Van Shake explained that the reason Coder was talking to Chris like this was to help change Chris's self-image. Because at this point, Chris is seeing himself as someone who hurts women. But if he continues to see himself that way, he'll never bother opening up and trying to do what's right by telling the truth. So Coder's trying to shift Chris's self-image to help him see the value in being honest. And so it's going to be hard to hear Coder, you know, saying positive things to Chris, but these aren't, he doesn't mean these things. He's just trying to get to the truth. So take the things that Coder says from this point on with a grain of salt. Coder then puts Chris at ease saying that he wanted to leave Nicole out of it and refocus the conversation back on Shanann, Bella, and Cece. So this is interesting. He used the affair as a way to get Chris to display honesty and rewarded him for it, as we talked about. And then he did Chris a favor by saying he was going to leave that part out of it now. He was not going to talk about the mistress, just trying to reinforce the idea that honesty will be in Chris's best interests. So Coda replies, so where are they? But Chris replies, that I do not know. So more frustration. After this, Coder realized he needed to really push to get Chris to confess. He started to tell Chris that he believed Nicole was probably the one pushing hard to get Chris to cheat, and that Shanann was probably pushing him away. Again, he doesn't really believe these things. He's just trying to find the girls. 
Coder is trying to get Chris to pity himself and feel that Coder is siding with him so he can open up about his deepest, darkest secret. But again, Chris continued to deny he did anything. Coder continued to apply pressure. And this is frustrating to me just reading about this, that Coder's doing so much to try to get Chris to open up and feels like he's getting nowhere. But can you imagine how frustrating it was for Coder and Tammy? (gasps) They're sitting there pushing this guy while trying to keep their cool, (laughs) you know? Mm -mm. So as they pushed him, Chris mentioned that it could have been an accident. And Coder jumped on that, saying, it's a big deal if it's an accident, because we can work with that, Chris. Coder is giving Chris a way to get the truth without making him feel like a monster. Even if he is a monster. But, again, he didn't budge. Speaking of being a monster, Tammy brings up that he hasn't shed one tear in the two days that he's been there. And for anyone else, this would be an incredibly emotional situation like we've been talking about this whole time, but not for Chris. Tammy told him, These are your baby girls, and you have not shed one tear about them not being around. If I lose my four-year-old in a store for ten seconds, I start to panic. Help me understand that. Suddenly, Chris starts to pretend to cry as he tells them, I would never do anything like that. Don't look into that. Oh, this guy is so frustrating. Again, Coder tries to get Chris to tell them where the girls are by aligning himself with Chris, saying, no matter how we find them or what condition they're in, you can tell us, guys, it's not as bad as it looks. However they're found, it's okay. We can keep talking to you. And again, this sounds like a terrible idea from our perspective. Like, why are you working with this guy, but for the sake of the investigation, Coder, again, just wants to find the girls. And once they do, they'll have a lot more evidence that they can build a case with against Chris. So it doesn't really matter what story he tells them while they're interrogating them, as long as he can lead them to where they are. Then Tammy asks, Chris, did Shanann do something to them? At first he denies it and said, I have no clue, saying they were there when he left. They start bringing up other cases in the area to get him to feel he's not the only one. And then Tammy went back to the question of if Shanann did something. She said, that's what I want to believe, but you're not telling me, so I need to assume the worst. Which is another example of genius police work, because she's completely giving him an out here. She's saying, blame Shanann, just tell us where they are. Mm -hmm. Tammy then said, what did Shanann do to them? Chicks are crazy. I just can't. When she says that in the video, she's just so serious. Chicks are crazy. (laughs) And again, she's acting here. Like, she's trying to make Chris feel at ease. And this is when Chris started to crack. He knew that his dad had flown across the country to be there during the investigation. And Chris asked, Can I go out and talk to my dad or something? In a shaky and tearful voice. They told him he was in the waiting room, and he asked if he could go out and talk to him. But Coder said, We can step out, because he wanted to make sure the conversation was recorded on video. Coder could tell Chris was about to crack. 
And that's where we'll pick back up next week. So, ugh, such a frustrating person to work with. Yeah. And, I mean, we've been hinting at this the whole time, but Chris obviously knows something mm-hmm. and had something to do with this. Uh, we got to take a moment to really say, like, this investigation team, and probably most investigation teams, I mean, what an amazing skill. Yeah. How much time and effort goes into learning these different methods of getting the truth out. Yeah, because they need to do this on the spot and know mm-hmm. how to react to what the person they're interrogating says. I mean, can you imagine how hard it would be to be like, yeah, it's your dead wife's fault. You know, like, yeah. siding with these people, well, it would take so much practice and so much patience. I remember the first time we watched this interrogation, like, last year, like, long before we ever thought about covering it, and I remember saying to you, like, can you imagine being an interrogator and having to talk to these people you know are monsters and having to pretend to be cordial with them? Mm-hmm. I mean, Ugh. honestly, it sounds really fascinating, and I would like to do it. I think you'd be good at it. Thank you. And like, as long as you're, as long as your um, mental stability <laughs> held up, <laughs> yeah, you know, it would be really taxing. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. I mean, how could you not take work home with you? Right. The, I mean, Law and Order. Mm-hmm. You saw how that affected Elliot Stabler. I mean, the job is mental. Or, yeah. You, you have. It goes everywhere with you. Huh. <sighs> yeah. So that's why we wanted to talk about this entire thing in detail because this is something that's behind the scenes of most of the cases that we talk about, Mm -hmm. but it's something that's so swept under the rug and ignored by the majority of people because, you know, we want to hear about the details of the crime. We don't care about the investigation, but these people are heroes in the whole world of true crime. And I'm glad that we were finally able to find a case where there's so much recorded information from the initial welfare check to the search to this interrogation. Everything's on video, so we can really share an in-depth perspective of what happened. And that's why it's going to be three parts now. (laughs) I really wanted to get this done in two parts. But it was just impossible. I mean, we're already well over an hour into recording and we haven't even gotten to the confession yet so stay tuned we're oh, sorry this oh, had to Bito. be three parts of oh, burritos here hi oh okay and, but you know it's such a roller coaster this case and it's just slowly opens up to reveal the truth and i think it's fascinating the way it all unfolds yes Um, So next week, we'll finally wrap up this story and talk about the impact on the families because there's some really sad stuff that went on after this all came to light with the family of Shanann. And it's just, there's so much craziness. But we'll talk about that next week. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening. Do we have any cat news? Um, They've been pretty good. I don't know. I love my little burrito. He's my favorite. I know. He he knew we were done recording, and he's like, hi. Jealous. 
jumped on my lap ASAP. It's sickening how much I love this cat. Yeah, burrito is really a snuggle muffin. He is. It's only me. And he loves to make biscuits on the bed. And by that we mean kneading the blankets. It's so funny to watch a cat just sit there and stare off into the distance while they knead <laughs> on something. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love cats so much. I know. Mm. He's a sweetheart. If only I could have a cat made out of tacos. Taco cat? Taco cat. Remember that t-shirt? Yeah, if this is your first time here, you can follow us on Instagram at VOV Podcast. Email us at Gmail. I mean, at VOV Podcast at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, Voice of the Victim Support System. So We I have a bunch of Patreon stuff we're going to send oh, out. Yes, patrons. Expect... If you're a new patron, expect great things. We have everything um, packed up and ready to go. We are waiting on some international stamps to be delivered to us. So, and we're gonna pick our winner for the shirt soon, right? Oh yes. That well, I don't. Have we announced that on the main feed? Yeah. Cool. I think someone will be winning a T-shirt this month. So stay tuned for this. Yes. Yes. Um. But anyway, thank you guys again for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.